Welcome to Emerging Women's Grace and Fire podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Pirat, your host, and I can't wait to do a deep dive into this week's conversation with the fabulous Janet Mock, author of Redefining Realness and host of the weekly culture show So Popular on MSNBC. Janet and I talk about her story as a blueprint for life for a young black trans person of color, how she defines courage, and what's inherently bizarre about the binary gender norms. We consider the power of discussing things we pretend we're too smart to like, like trashy TV shows and celebrity gossip. And Janet just nails it down when I ask her what her vision is for those who are no longer willing to compromise what we know to be true on the inside in order to maintain the mask we put on for survival. Hells yes! Let's get into it this week's Grace and Fire podcast, Redefining Realness with the brilliant and beautiful Janet Mock. Hello and welcome, Janet Mock. It's an honor to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm feeling a little nervous here because I've just completed your book not too long ago, and I cannot believe how amazing this book is. I mean, I'm just sort of still reeling from the honesty and the depth and the poignancy of your story and the relevancy it's an amazing piece of, of work, and you should be very proud. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's always, um, it's always a powerful thing to kind of have, you know, your story written down and then have it in stores and then have people, you know, bring it into their own lives and not only read about me and the work that I do and my own experiences, um, but then also to see themselves. I think that's always the uh, the goal is that other people see themselves in my very unique and specific experiences. Yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing about all of this is that you do have a very unique identity, which is actually not that unique. And so I want to, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit as we go through this interview, but I want to start with something that you say in the beginning, in the introduction of the book, and you say that it's your duty to become visible, that being visible is something that you're completely committed to. Tell us about that. I think so often, you know, when you're, when you grow up different or you grow up with experiences that you don't often see in, in the media or on TV or in books, you feel as if that maybe you should just kind of blend in and fit in with everyone else. Um, and so that way, you know, you're kind of like under that anonymity, you're protected, right? You're protected, but then you're also, you also learn a lot to be silent and to not, to not stick out. And I think that, you know, after years of kind of doing that as a, as a young person and trying to find my own space in the world, I came to a point where it felt as if, you know, I had all of these experiences and I had accomplished so much by the time that, you know, I was like 25, 26, that I kind of just had this point where it was like, I think I need to stand up and I need to be counted. And I think the first step was just telling my story, writing it down and, and sharing it with people. Um, and so for me, it does feel like a, a duty to be visible and to be vocal about my experiences. It, 
I feel like it's, I guess, I don't know whose quote this is, but they said that activism is a rent that they pay to exist in the world. And that's how I really feel. I really feel that writing, writing my story down, being visible and vocal about these issues um, are kind of like my way to pay back, you know, all those people who kind of never were able to have the privileges and the access that I have to be heard on the level that I've heard. And so, yeah, it's, it's a duty that I take on wholeheartedly. And it's one that is definitely also a burden, but also a, a great privilege. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting in your history because you've actually kind of had to do that twice in a very big way, right? First declaring yourself, and I think the term now is, and please let me know if I have this wrong, a cis woman or a trans woman, or actually becoming a woman, declaring yourself a woman, a girl, as a young person, and then once again coming out with your story. I mean, that's like layers and layers of realness, right? Yeah, it is, right? So, we, yeah, we talk about, you know, yeah, so much of the experiences, especially for trans people, it's like not only the, the point in which you, you tell yourself your own truth and then you tell those that are close to you, right, your family and friends, but then once you get out of that community space and you are post whatever you want to call transition, you constantly kind of have to, you know, disclose and come out to people in various ways throughout your life. And so for me, that came out in ways where it was like, you know, I disclosed with my family and friends first. And then, you know, I transitioned in my medical and social transition and lived my life as a young person from 13 on. And then having to, like, go out into the world and become, you know... Um, a young professional woman, a grad student, uh, working in corporate America and all those spaces where I didn't choose to disclose in every space that I was in and then to do it publicly. And so I think the unique thing with, with trans people's experiences is that there's a consistent layer of having to, I guess, tell your story. And I guess what, you know, a lot of people say within gay and lesbian communities is coming out, you know, constantly coming out. And I feel like with transness, because oftentimes, you know, so there's some trans people where you don't, you wouldn't know that they're trans, right? Like whatever that means. Um, right. but most people are not marked as trans visibly. And so it forces you to kind of consistently disclose to people. And there's just everyone's comfort level. How do you do that? But for me, it was like, I came out in my own private life, but then also having to do it on such a public level um, was a whole nother layer that I think most trans folks don't have to necessarily deal with, but it was something that became a part of the work that I do as a writer and, and um, an advocate. Yeah. And you are, I mean, you have, you referenced this in the book that you feel almost guilt for being exceptional or in your quotes, having made it. And yet you are helping so many people by this visibility. Can you tell us about that sort of confluence of ideas? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I came up in the world, you know, I'm the middle of five kids. Um, my mother was a teen mom. My sisters were teen moms. My father had issues with drug addiction. And so growing up in poor communities, growing up in communities of color, you know, the first thing I learned about myself as a young person was that I was poor and black in America. And so that has its own specific, you know, um, specific vulnerabilities, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next layer of that, as I kind of got a little, you know, gained more agency over the way that I dressed and the way that I spoke and the way that I moved my body, I realized that it was also, you know, trans. I didn't have that language at the time. And so for me, I was like, what does it mean to be a young person, a poor person, and then also a trans person and have that all exist in one body and one experience? And so that 
had me go through a lot of unique experiences growing up, you know, thinking about having to socially transition and medically transition to, you know, um, deal with coming out to my parents um, and my family and my siblings and then also my school and community and the neighborhood and my wider family. Um, and then the next layer of that is how then do I pay for, you know, my medical transition? How do I, how do I deal with all of those things in a world that is, you know, often not necessarily giving me those resources? And so, you know, I don't want to go so much into it because I want people to come to the book, how they come to it and just read about it. But, you know, those experiences, I, I don't know how I got out of those experiences. I don't know how I made it out. And so I think that that leaves, you know, certain people with a sense of like survivor's guilt. Why me? Why did I make it? And so I think that that's where it's consistently like, I was lucky enough to make it out. So how can I not talk about the experiences that I went through once I came to a safer space, once I had stability, once I survived all the darkness? How do I talk about people? How, how do I show young people who are going through similar experiences, who feel different, who feel marginalized, who feel silenced and invisibilized, how do I give them a blueprint to show them that this is the way that you can make it out and that you're not alone and that you're not isolated and that here's a different portrait of what a, a young woman can be. Here's a different portrait of success for a young trans woman of color. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's where I think the piece around the survivor's guilt and the, mm -hmm. the making it come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel that reading the book, there's so much mindset that you have that, I mean, you've overcome so much. And, you know, to be so young and to have this transition happening and to constantly put yourself out there and to have the courage to face all of the, I mean, basically the abuse and the rejection and the doubt and the fear that other people around you had. I mean, that takes a tremendous amount of courage. Tremendous. <laughs> Yeah, I, and now when I look back on it, it's so interesting because when I was younger, I never saw myself as young. I just saw, you know, but now being, you know, in my 30s, I look back at what, you know, I was, what I was going through as a very young person in the world, a young person with, you know, not many resources and thinking about how I made it through that and how I consistently, you know, how I had this sense of like self-assuredness, a sense of certainty around my my choices and my decisions and my experiences and my identity. I never I never waved, right? I had an unwavering sense of self. And I think that having that unwavering sense of self was really my core to enable me to get through those experiences and to persevere and to resist, you know, all of the temptations that are also out there that can kind of knock you down, whether that is, you know, dealing having to um, deal with abuse or violence or all of the, the vulnerabilities are also out there for folk in my community. And so for me, yeah, I think that there is, there, there is a sense of where people say that, that it's courageous that you went through what you went through, that you're such a brave person. But for me at the time, it really was the only option, choosing myself, choosing to be myself and fight for myself and fight for my space in the world was the only option for me to survive. And so for me, I guess the courageous piece and the brave piece are so integral, integral, integral to my to my becoming and my being, and it was my only only way to survive was to be myself. Well, now that's what's so interesting here because oftentimes we see people, and I think also young people who are going through this may have, and I, you know, we the term identity crisis. Here you're saying I had such a strong sense of self, and yet you're 
gender was in question. Probably, you know, I mean, for most of your life, when you were young, before you really knew, okay, I'm a woman, I'm a girl, you know, but that didn't shake your sense of self. Yeah, I think I think from very early on, I knew the difference between how I felt about myself and what people were saying about me, right? And I think mm-hmm. that we feel, I think trans people is just like a more dramatic part of that. It shows more visibly, right? Because we're doing a physical kind of transformation into being ourselves. It, it shows visibly. But I think that all of us go through that in various ways where people are telling you what you should do, how you should be, how you should act, what you should wear, what kind of career you should, you know, um, follow what path you should be on, who you should look up to. And I think that from a very young age, I was just like, no, what you're saying is commentary on what you believe I should be doing, but I know who I am. And I think a piece of that was just like that self-assuredness that I had as a young person that really enabled me to be really sharp and focused on what I wanted in the world, what I wanted to do with my life. And I think as a as a young person, too, who had parents that had made all kinds of mistakes. My parents were not prepared to have children when they had, when they had children. And so because they didn't have that preparedness, yeah. I had a little less of that same commentary. There was no way for them to provide for me or give to me or tell me that this is the path I had to go on. And so I was able to really say that this is my life. These are my decisions. These are my choices. This is the way that I want to adorn my body and the ways that I want to use my body in the world and the ways that I want to choose my career and where I want to live. And so I think that what was lucky out of that space is that it enabled me to say that my life is my own and I will do with it what I want to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. What's also interesting is you mentioned your parents as, you know, being young and had a whole host of issues that they were struggling with too. And yet they... In the end, they supported you. It felt like throughout all of this, I was, you know, kind of very surprised. And, you know, that was part of the book that I was like, wow, I was so impressed with how that all unfolded. Can you tell more about your parents and how they both blocked and supported you and, you know, that whole rhythm? Yeah, so I think I think that, you know, one of the greatest things or gifts that parents can do for their children, regardless if they're trans or not, is to give them space to discover who they are and to express who they are without, you know, the shake of a head or a rebuttal, right? To just really let them be and let them explore. And so Mm -hmm. for me, my parents, you know, when I was younger, younger, I'd say maybe from three to eight, there were points in which my father would take it upon himself to try to correct me. You know, if I would express myself, express things that traditionally girls are supposed to like, if I did those things and I would get, you know, a smack on the wrist or a smack on the butt or told, you know, not to do this, not to do that. I think eventually they evolved. But what, what that was for my father was that, you know, he learned in the world that if you have a child that is supposed to be a boy and this is what the doctor tells you, you then are supposed to steer them in a way that boys are quote unquote supposed to act, just the way that girls are quote unquote supposed to act. Of course. And so that yeah. gen that gender binary piece on how we all think that our children are supposed to be based on this very, you know, um, bizarre standard of rules that we create for people based on two options, which is either you're a boy or a girl, or you're masculine or feminine, or you're a man or a woman. Uh, my father struggled with that. And my mom did too, to a certain extent. But I think that what they really did give me was that once I became a teenager and I became vocal, they just let me lead the way. And a lot of parents would be like, I don't know if I would be able to let my child do that, to do the things that they enabled me to kind of do. And 
you know, I had friends who at the same time as I was transitioning who were being kicked out of their homes who had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think that my parents saw that, too. They were just like, what are we going to do? Tell our child that they can't live here, that they can't be here anymore because they they choose to wear lip gloss or they well, choose to That happens. To be... It happens. No, it happens all the time. 40% yeah. of forty percent of homeless youth are identify as LGBT. Right. Um, and so, like, that's, it's an epidemic in our country that, mm-hmm. that our children, you know, the young people are being pushed out of their homes. Their mm-hmm. parents are charged with their care, but their parents are not equipped to actually care for them, so they just push them out yeah. based on these very rigid standards of what we say someone is supposed to act or be like. Mm-hmm. And so it's deeply, you know, I know that in my own life it's been a gift that I have had a family that has been overwhelmingly um, accepting of me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, I talk oftentimes about being in low-resourced um, communities. You know, I, I was in communities where, you know, we didn't have much. Our school districts weren't great. They weren't highly rated. Um, our streets were not paved well. Not any, No one really owned their homes. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I did see within those spaces was that families had great resolve and great love. And, like, the, really, the real idea of family was 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 supported in the sense of like there, it took a village to raise these children who didn't have much and parents weren't kicking out their kids in that same way just because they were LGBT or trans or, or whatnot. And so I think that there's, there may be low on resources in terms of like money, but high on resources in terms of love and care and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about womanhood and when you first discovered, you know, you were in a very domestic environment and there was a lot of cooking going on and you were like wow this is womanhood and and I just loved that and I'm curious to hear from you how your connection to that developed from that moment on because you're you're a fabulous woman I mean I'm putting you up there with like Beyonce and like I mean just your expression and what you're doing with your life and you're in the media and you're strong you're telling your story all these things I'm not necessarily seeing you like baking and you know um (laughs) you know what I'm saying like I'm like snapping over here so I'm curious to see like how that evolved for you it was so interesting. I think about the ways in which, you know, the the world tells us what women's roles are. Yeah. And I think that being a feminist, it's like, you know, of course, I now have this, like, this complete, like, kaleidoscope or constellation of what women's experiences can be. And they're just all over the place, you know. Um, but when I was young, I remember, like, one of my first images of a woman was oftentimes like being a secretary to some man's dreams. And I write about that, like my second grade ideas or ideals of what I thought womanhood was, which was like to be in service of some man's dreams. And then to see, and then to see like Claire Huxtable as a teenager and being like, Oh wow, here's a woman who can have children who can make a sandwich for her husband, whose husband also makes her a sandwich who can have like these feminists, like, Mm -hmm you know, these feminists, like powerful feminist speeches and to be a lawyer and an attorney. And it was like, oh, wow, you can end to own a brownstone in Brooklyn, like all of these things you can have in life. Mm -hmm. And then I know in my own life, the most impactful was always, you know, the women in my father's family who ran that entire family. My father's one of six children. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother was a seamstress and she was a she worked for Todd Oldham and all of these all of these um, designers in Dallas, Texas. And you know, she raised her family with her two hands, you know, whether that was the sewing that she did, the house that she built with her husband, the um, the, the Sunday meals that we would have before and after church, um, 
and seeing my aunts and my grandmother in the kitchen, you know, tearing up collard greens and making cornbread and talking about the ways of the world, talking about the experiences that they went through, hearing them be in testimony and also providing for their family. You know, not only did they work, but they also cooked and they nurtured and they affirmed and they affirmed me in so many ways. And so for me, such a the huge backbone of my own womanhood is is based off of those experiences in my grandmother's kitchen. You know, and that was, you know, they didn't go, they weren't in the academy. They didn't have access to go to college and to sit around and just read books. And so what they did was the way that they learned the world was through experience, through sharing each other's experiences every Sunday with one another. And I was able to be this captive audience, this young child that was able to soak in you know, the resiliency that they had, but also mm. all of the different facets of their womanhood. And it really just really, um, it, they really built me in that way. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. But yeah, I'm not, my husband would definitely be like, you're not very domestic. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I was like, wow, okay. She's, you know, really identifying with this, but yeah. So, but, but, but I, then my husband cooks, you know, my husband yeah. cooks and I, I mostly do the cleaning, but he cooks, you know? And so it's like, it's so funny when we have these like kind of roles, you know, like yeah. I wish that I could do all of those things, but I really just can't do it all. <laughs> you know? Hallelujah. <laughs> the more that we can just say it, you know? You know, and also our partners, our partners can fill in, you know, if we do have partners, you know, like that's a part of those relationships, like what's the great fit for us is that, you know, these are things that he enjoys. He enjoys making breakfast and baking and and doing that space. I like interior design and I love to clean. And so that's how we kind of meet center stage um, there and pull our equal weight in the relationship in terms of like what we do to make sure that our home is, is um, as comfortable as possible. Yeah. And he seems amazing amazing just from what i've read through the book and then online and so it's wonderful to know that you're you know also modeling an amazing relationship among many other things i want to talk about femininity and i'm curious about you know here you want to be a girl you become a girl you were a girl and was there when you went through that transition a noticeable like power loss. I mean, on one hand, you're empowered, but on the other hand, society does not, you know, value the feminine as much as the masculine. So I'm curious to see if you notice that. I think what was interesting for me is that I never, um, because I was, you know, like children, when you're kind of in school and stuff, you know, you're kind of like all in this androgynous space, I would say, until your body starts to develop and change. Right. Because I largely went through the same, you know, puberty that everyone else went through, right? I only had one puberty. I kind of transitioned in the same way that all of us were just kids. And then all of a sudden we were like young women and young men. And so for me, I just went into like young womanhood, the same way that my, my counter, you know, my peers did. So we're all changing and shifting at the same time. For me, the big difference that I did notice was when I was, um, the things that, you know, like when I was in, when I went out into the world and um, had to deal with being like an outspoken young woman of color and, and uh, grappling with those different mm-hmm. things around how we say that, you know, we want our young, we want women to be strong. We want women to, you know, feel as if they can do anything. But then you notice the, the, the ways in which people um, belittle and also want to silence um, young, powerful women. And you're constantly grappling against that. For me, also, the next layer was also being, you know, not all women are feminine, right? Like some women reject Mm -hmm. femininity in that way. That's not the way that they present themselves. 
But I did. You know, my presentation is largely in line with what um, society says is acceptable or normative behavior for a woman. And so for me, I love, you know, just like I love reading feminist texts and I, I love um, literature. Um, I also love a great lipstick and I love big hair and I love a nice shaped shift dress. Like these things that I love, which are the ways in which I present my body. I know. So also notice, you know, when I go into spaces where I'm supposed to be, you know, a great, you know, some like theorist or like going into the Academy and giving these speeches that I do give oftentimes the way that people react to a feminine woman in those spaces, you know, because I think that for so long we've prescribed these roles of like, if you want to be seen as, as a serious uh, woman, one that we actually listen to, you don't, you, you should then try to blend in with the ways in which we say that is powerful, which is often aligned with masculinity. And so I think that right. um, so, so much of, you know, not only are trans people um, are trapped by this gender binary system that we have, you know, cisgender people are also trapped by it too. They're also always um, fighting for ways in which, you know, how can I present my body the way that I want to present it and still be taken seriously? And I think oftentimes, you know, we have these conversations in this binary sense of like, you're either a hoe or a housewife. (laughs) You know, when you think about the two molds that are out there, you're either a slut or you're like a complete virgin, right? And like, I think that what young feminism has done is that young feminism has said, you know what, I can be a hoe and I can be a housewife. I can wear a mini skirt and I can also carry books, right? I can also have something to say. I can be a sex worker and a stripper and still at the same time be deserving of rights and to be heard and to have, you know, my agency respected, whether that is by other feminists or whether that is by, you know, those who are governed to, to make laws and policies that uh, affect our lives. And so for me, as a young, as I I would say, like a young femme trans woman of color, um, all of those parts of my experience are there. And I I don't know if I ever had like a shift or a change because I was never, I was never like a masculine child. Like if anything, Mm -hmm. I think that having always been feminine, I had a target on my back, even when I was perceived to be like a young little boy in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always seen as like this little sissy or always dismissed because my femininity, because our culture doesn't see femininity as a strength. We only privilege masculinity. And that's yep. the part of like the misogyny and the sexism in our culture. We just say that anything that is feminine is weak and is extra and is like unnatural. Yeah. But everything that's masculine, even though they do quote unquote unnatural things to their bodies in order, but that's seen as strong and pillars of like strength. And so I think that I'm constantly trying to challenge that um, with my own experiences and and in the work that I do. Yeah. In your book, you use the term frivolous, that femininity is seen as frivolous. And I think that is so right on. I mean, it's the same with all things feminine beauty. You know, it's sort of like in the public school system when they need to cut a budget. What's the first thing that gets cut? Music, arts. That's just seen as like extra. And I think that that kind of thinking is just pervasive in our culture. And it's actually kind of scary because I do not want to live in a world without beauty. Right on. And I feel the same way. It's like, why do we, you know, we take out, um, we take out things that we, that are not valued. And it's like, who, who says that these things are not valued? And right. If you look up, you're like, oh yeah, I think these like white straight dudes who get to say and make up these arbitrary rules based on their own experiences in the world. They never valued art. They never valued beauty. They never valued, um, they never valued music and, and um, painting and, you know, I guess carpentry, sometimes they may keep it, but like all these things that are, you know, some people just express themselves differently and they need those outlets and young people need to also have the options to 
to say if they whether they like something or not. And so options are so so um, pivotal and vital for young people to for their own becoming and also just for their own contributions to the world. On your description on your website about your show, um, which is on MSNBC, so popular, you say that the goal of the show is to discuss the things you pretend you're too smart to like in an effort to expand the idea of what is considered political and worthy of analysis. And this is basically what we're talking about here. Exactly. I, I feel like there's always these like bizarre hierarchies that we create, right? Like, So if we're talking about art and culture, oftentimes we say, you know, fine art and opera and the theater are like high art and everything else is like lowbrow. And so for me, I I like to turn that around and to say, actually, you know, mass media culture is what most people are, are engaging with. It's the masses, right? So why do we say what the select few in the world who can afford to go to the opera, who can afford Hamilton tickets? Why do we say that that is high art, right? What, what the elite can see, but the masses, what they have, what they're um, consuming, what they're, the images that they're dealing with, the images that they see on the daily, why isn't that being centered? And so for me, when I created So Popular, I wanted the popular mass-mediated images and art and portraits and TV shows and all of those things to be the center of discussion because I really feel that it's where the people are. And so what is, it, what is, this, what is Beyonce's album, visual album, say about us? What does the presence um, and the prominence of the Kardashian family and all of their endless storylines and the the business that they've been able to build, what does that say about our culture? What does that say about where we want to go, what we want to do and what we value? And so for me, when I created So Popular, I wanted to I wanted to talk about popular culture in a way that didn't make me have to feel as if I needed to shut off my social justice or feminist or racial justice lens and still be able to enjoy these things and talk about them with, with people who write about discuss these issues on a daily basis. And so um, I'm, I'm really glad that I, I had that space and I created that space to have those those um, conversations. No, it's fabulous, which brings me to the topic I've probably been dying to bring up since the beginning of the interview, is we need to talk about lemonade. I would love to hear your take on that. Oh, Lemonade, Beyonce's visual album. You know, I've she has a chapter basically in my book. I have this one chapter where I talk about, you know, a lot of the, the pop culture that really influenced me. And a part of that is, you know, Janet Jackson and Lauren Hill and Claire right. Huxville is a part of that. You know, um, I talk about Oprah Winfrey and her influence seeing Diana Ross on TV. I had a similar influence when I saw Beyonce on MTV when I was like 14, 15 years old. And seeing Destiny's Child, the girl group that she was a part of, was such a building block for me as a young person searching for mirrors of myself in media. Um, And so to see Beyonce evolve in this way where, you know, in 2013, she came out as a feminist. She made a feminist stance um, in a way that really busted the doors open to make feminism I think it's accessible to young people who often only maybe only engage in popular culture, but may not have access to go to college and actually learn about it in women's studies or gender studies class. Right. So it pushed them to, it gave them a definition. It gave, it it, it gave them a definition from a woman that's powerful, that is a mother, that is a wife, that is a daughter, that is a businesswoman, that is her own manager. And to see her now go to the next layer of it to say that, not only am I a feminist, but I'm also intersectional in my feminism. Mm-hmm. My feminism now is also rooted in my her own experiences of being, you know, a young black 
girl in America, right? Like she talks about the ideas of like the pain that she's gone through, but also like the ideas of like the interpersonal pain too, right? Mm -hmm. Because Lemonade discusses, you know, betrayal, right? Betrayal in the sense of like your own partner stepping out on you and like, how do you resolve that? And how do you deal with what not only the denial of it, but then also the anger and the rage of it Mm -hmm. to deal with the sense of like sitting and talking with other people to talk about the lessons you learned from your father to what the lessons your mother taught you to then go to a point at the end where it's like, we can reconcile and we can forgive. And we can also have this space of testimony with one another. And so I'm just, I love Lemonade. I've been listening to it nonstop since it came yeah. out. Um, but the, the visual album piece of it has completely, I believe, continually, Beyonce has changed the game and shifted the ways in which people will then release their music and the ways in which they'll have to think even more deeply in order to have deeper rooted meanings in our music. Yeah. And just to sort of air out publicly what's been happening and what her process is and I sort of felt like that whole thing was buried and that wasn't going to come up. And here it was right there for everybody to see. And I just thought it was fantastic. Talk about really kind of, I mean, I don't know if vulnerability is the word because she is creating a visual art piece, but it was refreshing. It was refreshing and courageous. And- it really, it really was. I think about, you know, and I, I agree with you that I think the, I think the word is vulnerable to be vulnerable in one's art, to be yeah. vulnerable and allow, allow people, especially when you're such a public person like her to be out and allow right. everyone to kind of see the pain that you went through and how you felt betrayed by someone that, you know, you know, we don't know if this is autobiographical, but I think that we can all kind of assume that Pretty pieces much. of it yeah. are, are rooted in that sense of, you know, but how many, how many people have been, you know, cheated on and betrayed by their partners? That's a part of relationships sometimes. We're dealing with flawed people. And right. so how do we grapple with that? And I think that she's probably given a lot of women specifically space to say, you know, I can go through this experience. It doesn't make me weak by staying if I choose to stay and work on this relationship right on. and this marriage. Right and so on. I think that that's so powerful that she's given people that, given women that space to say, you know what, we can go through this and I can be hurt and pain, but I can make a strong decision to say, I'm going to stay in my marriage and work on it. Now, if you do it again, that's her next layer of it. If you do it again, I'm not staying around. <laughs> <laughs> that baseball bat's not going to be hitting the cards. Let's put it that way. <laughs> exactly. Right. You talk about this idea of passing, and I want to talk about this a little bit more because I'm eager for the landscape. I think a lot of people are eager for the landscape to change, and it feels like with Target and their policies of, you know, just whatever you identify with, use that bathroom. Are we, this whole idea of passing off as somebody, you know, one gender or the other, when is that going to just go away and it's going to be like a total, you know, freak show, like at, on the Star Wars, you know, the cantina scene, you know, where everyone can just be who they are. And are we still in this, like, you know, I know in the, in the area of like, whatever, straight, heterosexual women, that there's still a lot of passing going, like I'm passing myself off as a successful woman. You know, somebody may be passing themselves off as having a happy marriage. So it's not just unique mm-hmm. to somebody who's passing themselves off as a woman who's a man or, you know, whatever. But when I feel like tapping into what's happening in the trans, cis, LBGTQ community, you guys are really leading this whole identification and identity. And what does it mean to like actually be real? And how much courage do you have to actually do that? You guys are leading that. And I'm curious to see, like, 
if you think that that's really going to be a shift, I mean, we're right at the beginning of it, but what is your view on that? I think that what we're, I think that we are at an evolutionary moment in our culture right now in a sense of people really having the tools. I think a big part of it is, is having social media and having access to have podcasts like these and have people share their ideas and share themselves and share the ways in which they would curate their own images of their own life, whether that's through Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook. And so now you have this collage and kaleidoscope of different identities and experiences out in the world for all of us to consume. We no longer are just um, having to deal with the mass mediated culture telling us who we are. We can now say, nope, that's not who we are. This is who we are. Here's a, here's a selfie. Here's me with my friends. Here's what my life actually looks like. Oh, you know what? I'm going to do my own YouTube show about my own life and answering questions about things that may make a, a lot of people uncomfortable. And so I think that what's going on now is that there's more options, right? No longer do we have to just fall into the line of, you know, straight or gay, you know, um, trans or cisgender, man or woman, right? Mm-hmm. So now people can can pick out what they want. And there is going to be like this explosion of identities that are out there. And there's new language being being perceived. And a lot of people who would who actually fall in line with like what we consider to be normative, um, are I think feel slightly threatened around that idea of, you know, marginal people now having space to say, this is who I am. And this is how you will address me. And no, that's not the way that I know the world to be. This is the way that I know the world to be. And so for me, I do think that there is a power in terms of like, um, you know, trans and queer people now having access to say that this is who they are and that there is a point of the leading charge in the sense mm-hmm. of that. Because I think that what happens in our culture, as soon as we are born, we're all labeled immediately by people who, with no one consulting us about mm-hmm. those labels. And we're expected to just live up to whatever everyone else's definitions are but our own. And we're mm-hmm. all told to value that voice outside of ourselves rather than valuing the voice and the truth that we know about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, we're, that our culture shifting in that sense. It's like, no longer will I listen to you. I'm going to listen to me. And I'm going to listen to people like me. And I'm going to gain strength from community. And they gain strength to know that I can be vulnerable and powerful, right? I can be feminine and powerful. I can be all of these things that you say were not possible. I can show you that they are possible. We, we are creating our own possibility models in terms of living our truth. And what really is authentic is being able to listen to ourselves and no longer listen to people who are telling us who we should be. Right. So herein lies the irony. Maybe you can help me clarify this, but doesn't popular culture and the media enforce these labels and projections? I mean, that's. I think. I, th- I think it depends on what you're. What, what what we say is. Um. What we say the media is. What 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 would be one example? Oh, you know. I mean, let's look at the Kardashians. I mean, I mm-hmm. I don't know that they're putting their authentic selves and their vulnerable selves out there. You know, I'm seeing, you know, a lot of body shots and a lot of images that. You know, I, I'm not really like super familiar with them, but what I have seen, I just feel like it's not the strongest portrayal of womanhood out there personally. And I feel like that it may enforce this sort of idea that being a successful woman out there means you have to be beautiful. You have to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. show some skin. You have to have tons of money. And... You know, I love popular culture, and but, 
you know, I have a certain intellect around it. I have a certain background. I have a strong sense of self. But I worry about the people who don't, like you, have that at a young age, that they're very impressionable. And so popular culture can be a very strong ally for us to get our voice out there. But I think at the same time, content that's being consumed out there may not be of the highest order. Well, yeah, I think that that's why we, we discuss it, right? We, dis- yeah. we discuss it in order to kind of unpack it and see what the true meaning is. And what's so great now is that, you know, soon I feel like terms like mass media are going to go away in the sense of, oh. you know, now what's be- what, you're, what we're noticing is that actually mass media is becoming what social media is, right? Because mm. now you have, you have like these TV shows and these news organizations that are reporting on what's happening on Twitter and what's happening on Instagram. And so now what's happening is that the voices of the people are becoming the center because we're, we're out there in these masses. And so for me, it's like, yeah, the Kardashians are one portrait of what womanhood can look like, but I don't want them to go away. I think that there's also great value in what they've been able to build um, as a family and as a brand. Now, do I want them to be the sole force of what we have out in the world? No, but they also aren't the sole force out yeah. out in the world in terms of what, what womanhood can look like. And what's great is that I think that young people who actually are not, millennials are not watching television. Millennials, so they're not responsible for the for the power of the Kardashians, if anything, it's like older millennials and Gen X and baby boomers were actually watching those shows, right? right? Television was created mostly on the backs of those generations. And so Gen X and the baby boomers are the ones that are supporting these shows. So like when you actually look at what young people are looking at, they're actually looking at themselves on YouTube, meaning that like they're looking at images. So the young women are creating their own images of self online whether that's like their beauty tutorials and like when they're looking to get their makeup like done, they're looking at another 19 year old who's doing makeup and doing makeup reviews, right? Right. She's now a millionaire, right? She's the one that's out in the world that has created her own brand. And so for me, I have great um, optimism in terms of like young people's power and strength to find the images and to create the images of what they believe is the most powerful and should be central. And so what I love is like this, the, what social media allows us to have is like this democratization of media that enables us to have even more images, right? Um, and so that's exciting to me. But yeah, no, I definitely agree too that there's like problematic ways in which certain, certain celebrities dominate culture. But the way that pop culture always works is that it dominates for a time period and then something else comes along. And so it's just the way in which the media and all of it works. But yeah, there's some definite problematic natures around like the sexualization of women and girls and what does it teach them that their value based on just on the way that they look and we have to dismantle that. But then also to say that to be sexy and to dress the way that the Kardashians dress, you can still also be taken seriously, right? So it's like there's a lot of nuance in that. And that's what I love so much about about the presence of, of popular culture and the discussions that we do get to have around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So great. So we are at our end. I would love one final question here. Our audience is filled with women who are, we use this term emerging, and it's emerging women, but the term emerging is that basically these are women that are reconciling their inner and outer lives, their inner truth with what they're doing and what they're putting out on the outside. No longer are we compromising what we know to be true on the inside with the life that we have on the outside. But to live that kind of life, to live the life of an emerging woman, to really truly come to the surface and not just pass, 
but actually like thrive and mm. be who we are. It takes a huge amount of courage. And I would love to hear your final thoughts on what would be, you know, the, the tip or piece of advice or vision that you have for us to continue on that path. I guess the, the first thing that I would say is, you know, all of us every day are fighting so hard to take off the masks that we were trained to put on in order to survive, right? To, mm-hmm. to, and so a lot of the work is undoing all the things that we learn about what we're supposed to do in order to be deemed as valuable or to be deemed as heard. And so for me, I would say that we, we have to do that work of taking off those masks and revealing ourselves. And that comes with a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of vulnerability and power to be that vulnerable publicly, to exert your truth publicly, to no longer um, listen to what all the commentary and everyone outside of you are saying, but then to just listen to what you know is true for yourself, what's going to bring you happiness, what's going to bring you joy, what's going to make you content in the world. Um, And so for me, it's been a life, it's been a life's journey to come to that space to say, you know, just because you may perceive me in a certain way, I have a lot of experiences and um, things based on my identities that you may not see on the surface, but they are part of me and I will own them. I will no longer think that, you know, having labels of trans or black or woman as things that are that I should put push aside in order to be seen as more powerful. You know what? I'm going to actually speak them out and say them because me speaking them out and saying them and reclaiming them actually gains me more power. So I think that there's such power in the truth. I think that we can emerge from such darkness when we really just tap into ourselves and tap into our truth. Mm. Yes, may it be so. Well, we're really looking forward to having you at Emerging Women Live. And yeah, it's going to be great this October. It's going to be a good one. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Great. Okay, Janet, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Take good care. 